And tonight, brace yourself, the last handout is on the table. No applause. I thought, I thought for sure there'd be applause, but I know some of you are thinking, surely we're almost done here. Uh, but we, uh, the last handout's there, and uh, not that we're going to get to it tonight, but at least it's there. And we're going to take another run at uh, where we began last week, because we got about halfway into it, and um, we're going to kind of review the first part of it, and uh, hopefully things are going to make a little bit more sense here. Had some expert help. I think it's page 60 on the notes that talks about the background of a new heaven and new earth. We're coming to, in, in the book of Revelation, to the end of the third vision. Um, we've had the, these snapshots we've been talking about. This is the fourth of them, which is a snapshot of the new heaven and new earth. Now, there's one more vision to come, which is a short vision that picks up at chapter 21, verse 9, and goes through uh, chapter 22, verse 5. And it's kind of an elaboration of the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, uh, which is the final vision of the book. But it, that, that concept is introduced in chapter 21. And the approach that we've been taking in our study of Revelation is that essentially this book is written to first century Christians undergoing persecution at the hands of a particular empire, the Roman Empire, that this book centers uh, on that conflict and is a message of hope and victory, ultimate victory for God's people in the face of what would seem like insurmountable odds and an enemy that no one could stand against. And so as we come to this, this section here on the new heaven and new earth, I'd just like to remind us we haven't left, the, we're still in the third vision, we haven't come to some kind of new break or something, and we're going to be looking at uh, the new heaven and new earth in the context of this first century conflict. And I, I don't know if I said these words last week, but we talked about this concept, and I'm going to review a little bit and try to explain this, and hopefully uh, hopefully it'll, it'll make sense. And if it anywhere along the way that starts to not happen, stop me, and we'll, we'll, we'll just come back and take another hit uh, or another try at it. What happens in Scripture on many occasions is that prophets will use end-time language, the, the language of the absolute end of time. They will take that kind of language, those kinds of words and images, and they will use them in time, in particular places and in particular judgments. Uh, last week, we started off uh, with this scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you take a look at that, um, and I may not, I, I will read this one all the way through. Some of these we may just reference because we, did, we, did, we read most of these last week. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, verses 9 through 12 or 10 through 12. Sorry about that. Actually, if you go nine, nine, we'll go nine to thirteen. And 
let me just say Peter is writing. This isn't apocalyptic literature. This isn't symbolic language. Essentially, this is Peter's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, something that we're all very much aware of. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says, at the end of time, this is when Jesus returns at the end of human history, God is going to act, and in this passage, two of the things that Peter describes is, first of all, the old world is destroyed. And there will be the creation of new heavens and earth. There are many passages in the New Testament that speak of this particular moment in human history. The end of essentially time as we know it, the return of Jesus. Jesus talks about it in his own ministry and teaching. He talks about the day will come when the, those who are dead, will, uh, in the, who are in their graves, will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will be re- resurrected, some to life some to judgment in John chapter 5, 28 and 29. Peter talks about the return of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, at the, in the, you know, in the moment, at the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, Christ will return, the dead will be raised incorruptible, the living will be changed, we'll meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18, that very comforting passage about the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, speaking about Jesus coming in judgment. There are many, many, many passages in Scripture that talk about the end of time and, and list several things that are going to happen. Resurrection, return of Jesus, judgment. But for our purposes in our text tonight, just I'd like for us to realize that we're told that the, old, that the present world order will be destroyed and that there will be a new order. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the language of the end time, the, the, uh, the images that we see, that, let, me, let me leave off that word images, the descriptions that we have of the end of time and the things that will happen at the end, such as Peter mentioned, that kind of language is employed in time at certain moments in history, not to talk about the final end of time, but to talk about God's judgment on some particular group of people. At the end of time, God will bring judgment on all the evil people who've ever lived, and God will bring his people into fellowship with him for eternity. That's the final judgment. But that kind of language is used throughout the Old Testament and some in the New Testament, speaking not of the end of time, but God doing something similar to that only in regards to a particular nation 
or a particular people. And last week we looked at a couple of examples, and we're going to put them up here on our timeline. Uh, timeline will not be drawn to scale, but if you'll, because uh, we don't. First of all, we don't know when the end is going to be, so we, well, it's going to be off for that. But we looked at Isaiah last week. Th- turn to Isaiah 13. Isaiah the prophet. Oh, let's extend this out a little bit. We're not going to have enough room. Um, Isaiah the prophet uh, prophesies um, somewhere between like 740 and 680. I mean, that's kind of his uh, that's kind of his prophetic lifespan. So this is Isaiah, and Isaiah prophesies in. Now that's Isaiah's date. This is the actual date of the prophet's. Uh, of his ministry. In Isaiah chapter 13, uh, there is an oracle against Babylon. And we read, I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of this. this. This is a judgment on a nation, the nation of Babylon, the empire that will eventually, they haven't yet at this point, but the, the nation that will eventually oppress God's people, take them into captivity and exile. And in verse 9, Isaiah chapter 13 verse 9 Behold the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless um Isaiah, is, this is a prophecy from God regarding the, 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 Babylon, the, the nation of Babylon. And it is saying in this prophecy that the constellations um, and, the, and the stars of heaven will not give their light, that the sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. As we talked about this last week, that didn't literally happen when, when the nation of Babylon fell, did it? If that happened, what would happen if the stars fell out of the sky and the sun and the moon were gone? What would happen to life on this earth? Okay, it'd be over. (laughs) It would be over quick. The present order would be gone if those things... Because when those things do happen, the present order will be gone. And, and, And now, Isaiah's prophesying that about Babylon... Babylon falls in 539. So as Isaiah prophesies about this um, in Isaiah 13, he's talking about events that are going to happen in 539. But he's using poetic language. He's using language that sure sounds like it's the end of the world. But in fact, it's, it's uh, it's the end of Babylon's world. This is Babylon's world that's coming to an end. Not the whole world. Babylon's world. Babylon as a power, as an empire, is going to be uh, judged by God and going to be taken completely out of the way. Another one that we looked at in uh, in Isaiah 34, uh, in the judgment against Edom. And the first verse I'm going to read, verse 4, may be more general to to other nations as well. But take a look at Isaiah 34, 4 and 5. Um, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. 
All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill on the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Drop down to verse 9. The strings of Edom will be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Two things are said here, and notice that they're being said about Edom. One, again, is this whole thing about the stars falling out of the sky. Well, if all the stars fall out of the sky, how can the rivers of Edom be turned to burning sulfur? I mean, it would seem to me like the world would be gone. We recognize we're dealing, again, with poetic language. Language that's describing the end of something. Are there burning rivers of sulfur in the Old Testament land of Edom today? No. The Bible says it's going to burn forever and ever. Did it? No, not literally. Yes, in the sense that we're not saying the word isn't true. The word is true, but the word isn't speaking literally about stars falling from the sky or there being burning sulfur. It's speaking about the fall of Edom. Uh, The fall of Edom, we don't have an exact date, but it's somewhere close to the time of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Whoops, got my dates in the wrong spot. Um, Edom falls to Babylon about the same time uh, uh, as Jerusalem falls to Babylon. So it's somewhere around 580, uh, and here's Isaiah 34. And so we have end-time language being used to describe the end of a world um, and an end of a world that's being brought about God because of his judgment against that, that people because of their sin. Okay, feedback. Does, does that... Okay, I see one shaking head. I thank you very much for that. You can shake this way too. But basically, it's just a... It's, a, I think, a, hopefully a, a pretty clear principle. You have language used that is truly the end of time. That same kind of imagery, then, is used to talk about... We're talking about now the end of Babylon's world, the end of Edom's world, using language that would describe... If it literally happened, would describe the end of the world. But it's, it's being used as a judgment, uh, words of judgment against nations so that their world is being destroyed. And uh, I'm not going to give any more examples. There's a lot of them in the Old Testament. And it's very consistent, this kind of language. The flip side of this, however, is what's the good news in the Old Testament prophets about all of these worlds ending, all of these, all of these nations who are evil, some of whom oppress the people of God, What is written or what is said about God's people uh, as far as God blessing them or or God uh, uh, giving them victory as 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 the nations that oppress them are destroyed? And the language that we find there is just basically the opposite kind of language as we've, we've read in the prophets here. We have all kinds of amazing things happen where rivers spring up in the middle of the desert and lions and lambs lay down to, together and old, you know, uh, there's no crying or pain and there's 
essentially uh, you know, milk and honey and wine dropping from the hills and mountains. And the language is even used that God makes for his people a new heaven and new earth. The language of a new heaven and new earth doesn't begin in Revelation. The language of a new heaven and new earth begins in the Old Testament and is used uh, uh, by Isaiah. We're going to stay in Isaiah here. And if the language of judgment applied to like Babylon and Edom is, is taking the end time language to talk about the judgment of nations, then this kind of language, the language of creation and new heavens and, and earth, also are used to describe God blessing his own people uh, as he judges the nations. And let's take a look at a couple of those. They're there in your notes, but take a look at Isaiah 65. And I'm just going to put it here. It's going to be in Isaiah 65 and then Isaiah 60. And in Isaiah 65, verse 17, as God's talking about the restoration of his people and the restoration of Israel, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. And I'm... Oh, that's pretty... That's a good cue there. I was going to... Sorry, I was going to stop and say, as I'm reading all these next passages, think, think of things you've read in Revelation. See how many things that I read in the next couple of minutes that you are familiar with out of Revelation 21 and 22. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. And the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Then skip down to verse 25, just one other example. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You have the holy mountain. You have the city of God. There's nothing in it that's going to harm God's people. There is this extended life. There is no more sorrow. There is no more weeping. There is no more distress. Why? Because there is now a new heaven and a new earth. Did that literally happen when Israel was restored? Of course, we recognize, no, it did not literally happen. But actually, what did happen was that Israel had a new world. When, the, when Babylon fell, Israel was able to go home. Israel was able to be restored back to her land and, uh, and be blessed by God in her covenant relationship with him. And so this, um, as the old world of Babylon is destroyed, God's people step into a new world, a new world that's described in ways that speak of, of life and blessing in the presence of God. All of this is, is talking about things that are going to happen to Israel in time. Babylon is going to fall. Israel, 
uh, just after 539, starting 539, 538, they go back to the land of Israel. They go back to Jerusalem. They eventually will rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of the city and, and have their covenant with God renewed. In other words, Israel will have a whole new world. If you look at it from the Old Testament point of view and imagine yourself as a Jew in Babylonian exile with Jerusalem destroyed and the temple destroyed, then life is over. There is no hope because for the Jew, it was all about Jerusalem and the temple and the presence of God among his people there. That's where God had placed his name among his people. So it's the end. There's, there's nothing left. So what, what does God do? God destroys that world in which they're living, being oppressed by Babylon, and God essentially gives them a new heaven and new earth. In, 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 in terms here of, of, of symbol, of saying, there's a, you've got a whole new life ahead of you now. There's, your life is changing completely. You're stepping in to a complete new world. And the same kind of language, if you look over in chapter 60, as Isaiah talks about the future glory of Israel, in chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Israel restored is going to be this bright place, and the rest of the world is in darkness. But people will look to the people of the uh, people of the world can look to God's people and be drawn to the light of God that they reflect. And nations will come, uh, in you know, in have the opportunity of coming in, uh, in into the the city into relationship with God. Look at verse eleven as as God describes this city. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. I think we mentioned this last week. When you have an ancient city that has a wall around it with gates, to say that the gates are never going to be closed means that that city is never going to be in danger. You close the gates to protect the city. But God says of Jerusalem, as his people are restored into relationship with him, you'll never have to close the gates. God is saying, you're going to be living in such a relationship with me that you, you are not going to be living in fear any longer. In verse 18, Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And again we see this, there's no violence. The sun and moon aren't necessary anymore, because God is the light. I'm I'm sure that that's a... Uh, one of those references you connect with the book of Revelation. There's no sun, there's no moon. Why? Well, the, la- the God and the Lamb are the light. You don't need any light anymore. You have this, you, you are living in this city, in this environment where God himself lives, 
And so there's protection for God's people. I'll get just so what we're having here is we're having we're having language that will ultimately occur at the return of Jesus, literally a new environment, a new heavens and new earth, and that language is then applied to to, the, to different times in history where God's people are stepping into a new world. Uh, I was talking to Candy earlier today, and I said, this is, for any Disney people this may work, you know the song, A Whole New World? That's the only song I could think of. You know, A Whole New World. Shall we all sing it? That's the application tonight. Maybe not. That's the only part of the song I know. But what does that song say? If I, I, I'm not sure which one it was in, but uh, somebody had a whole new world, didn't they? It was like their whole life had changed. Something had happened, and now their whole life was different. And it's like, i got a whole new world. That's what this means. It's a whole new world. Israel's got a whole new world after Babylon is gone, and they go home to Jerusalem. It's a whole new world. Guess what? The church has a whole new world. When Rome is destroyed and the church is vindicated, they have a whole new world. It's just a completely different environment than they were living under when they were being persecuted. That's kind of where we're heading with, with, this, with this language. And Eldon? Well, I'm getting a little bit which came first. Uh, this language was used back here by Isaiah. I think it's the other way around. Peter borrowed the language from Isaiah. He would have read that, and he would have been familiar with that language. So he borrowed that language to apply it to the end of where, according to Peter, since we happen to read First Peter tonight, where do you think Peter got his language? From Isaiah. Mm. You don't think so? Where do prophets get their language? From God. From God. Prophets get their language from God. Who gave Isaiah these words? God. Who gave Peter his words? God. I'm not saying Peter's unaware of Isaiah. I'm saying that God, God is the originator of the language and the meaning. And God is the only one who can be because God knows the end from the beginning. God knows how things are going to end when Isaiah doesn't. I, I think, you know, they, but the language, the language has consistency because God is the author of the language. And God gave those images to Isaiah. You're right in the sense that Isaiah doesn't write of the, the end of time ex- except, by, except by pointing to it prophetically through these images. But that's something that, that the Holy Spirit and God are doing. So all I'm saying is I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't be comfortable in saying Pete... I'm not saying that Peter is unaware of the imagery. But I'm saying the imagery in Isaiah works because of what its ultimate meaning is. You're right in terms of the chronology of the language. But I think if you, if you consider God as the source of the language, the time issue is irrelevant. I mean, you th- think, for example, of, of things we read about in prophecy. You know, when, when David... When David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus borrow that language? Or did God give that language to David because Jesus was going to say it? I'm just saying that when when you're dealing with God's word, it's hard for us to put the, you know, 
since God's the author of his word, um, I can think of one occasion where Jesus did something on purpose because he knew it was going to fulfill prophecy. But otherwise, I think when you, when you read Isaiah 53, we don't say, oh yeah, Jesus borrowed that when he went to the cross. No, Isaiah is writing prophetically, inspired by God, to speak of things that would only later be fully understood. I, I th- to me, that's how it works here. But that's, that's just... Honestly, I hadn't thought about it till this moment, so uh, to fill the question. But that's, off the top of my head, that's how I would respond. That, that P- Peter is saying these things inspired by God and by the Holy Spirit. Just as Isaiah is saying them. And, and not that Peter's unaware of their usage in the Old Testament, but that but that uh, he's certainly not writing that without, without God leading him to write those words. I would, that would be my, my thought. Yes. And so God, as he often does in prophecy and in, and in shadows and realities throughout the Old Testament, all of the shadows of the things that are real, you know, when you think of the book of Hebrews, all of the shadow and reality things that go on, uh, we look at the realities, we recognize what's written in the Old Testament isn't the originator of it. The reality is the originator of it, but the Old Testament account of it only speaks of it in terms of shadow. The high priesthood. We have high priest in the Old Testament because Jesus would be our high priest. It wasn't the other way around. It starts with the, with the heavenly reality of Christ as high priest, and then we go to the Old Testament and God creates sort of a parallel uh, uh, shadow to the reality that's going to follow. Now that would be that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Seriously, that's a, that's an excellent question. I, I had I truly hadn't uh, hadn't thought about it, but that's my best job at giving a giving an answer. In Ezekiel 40, I used to really go into speed reading mode in my daily Bible reading when I got to Ezekiel 40 because I got really tired of reading all those measurements and, and, and trying to picture this temple complex that every little doorway and cranny and everything is measured and it just seems like it goes on well it does for eight chapters nearly and uh, I now really like those chapters I might read through, a little quickly through some of the measurements but in, in, I have the, in your notes there, in Ezekiel 40, um, and this is a, a huge part of the background of Revelation 21 and 22. Isaiah, or Ezekiel, sorry. Ezekiel is in Babylon. Israel is still in Babylonian captivity. But God is now prophesying the good news of their return. And in Ezekiel 40, uh, Ezekiel is lifted up. How this is being done, in terms of a vision, I would say he is taken up out of Babylon and he's placed on a high mountain. And remember that he's placed on a high mountain and he's shown a city. Pretty sure we're going to get to a point in just a minute where John is put on a high mountain and he looks down at the city. Well, that happens to Ezekiel. And the city's Jerusalem. And... uh, In Ezekiel chapter 40, that's where verse 2 there, that's where it starts. In in chapter 43, he goes back to the temple. There's nothing that is left to defile inside the temple. Everything is now cleansed and ready for God. God is re-entering the temple. 
And in the vision of Ezekiel, this is God saying, look, you're going to go back home. I'm going to come back. You're going to be there. These are words of encouragement to the people in exile. And then as we're going to skip the measurements, but we did talk about the measuring earlier because we've had measuring in the book of, uh, the book of uh, Revelation earlier. But this last scene, let me just read a few verses out of Ezekiel 47. The whole, this whole section, eight or nine chapters, is just describing the city. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from the whole, below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. What then happens is the water just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's measured, you know, it's measured along the way. And eventually the water flows all the way out to the desert, all the way out to the, Red, uh, to the Dead Sea. And notice what's said in verse 7. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. This is the Dead Sea. The water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. Uh, from Engedi to Enagleum, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Remember this scene when we get to the next chapter in Revelation. We have a river flowing from the throne of God in the temple, flowing out, bringing life, trees planted, people eating the fruit for life. The the leaves of of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Ezekiel has shown this beautiful vision That never literally happens, does it? A river flowing out of the temple down to the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea becoming fresh water. That doesn't literally happen. This is a vision. What does it say? God says, when I restore you to the land and I'm back in the temple and you were there, Jerusalem will be this fountain of life. And uh, there will be food, there will be water, there will be fish, there will be everything that's needed for life. And even for healing, the people of the nations can come here and be healed of their diseases. These images that we read in Ezekiel and that we read in Isaiah, these images that in one way or another kind of tie into this idea of new heavens and new earth, are being applied, in this case, to the nation of Israel and their return from Babylonian captivity and the blessing that God is going 
to, uh, to give to his people. And these images have meaning to us. When you read these images, especially for us, and Eldon points out correctly, we know the end of these where they may not have. We really know where these are coming from. And we read these and we recognize that God is talking about great blessing. And, and isn't it interesting that at the heart of this Old Testament story is the destruction of Babylon and a new heaven and a new earth for Israel. And what is Revelation about? It's about the destruction of Babylon and a new heaven and earth for the church. The parallels here are, are quite striking. Uh, the imagery is quite striking. And I hope that as we look at the text, we can see what this has to do with Revelation. Because in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 11, we were told that the earth and the sky have fled away. And now in chapter 21, let me read to you the opening verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from them. shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying or mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What we're reading in Revelation, let me put put Jesus here. What we're reading here, if John's writing somewhere around 85, we're reading Revelation 21, 1 through 8 is not about the end of time. We're still in the vision. We're still in the same setting that we've been in through this entire vision. Revelation 21, 1 through 8 is doing the same thing that we find in other passages in prophets of the Old Testament, we're taking this language of new heaven and new earth and this language of destruction where the old world has been taken away and applying it in time at this point to Rome and to the victory of the church where Rome has been concerned. When you think back to Isaiah 65... Isaiah 65 is talking about the end of Babylon's world and a new heaven and earth for God's people Israel. In Revelation 21, we're reading about the end of the New Testament Babylon's world of Rome and the new heavens and new earth or a whole new world for God's people. I know at this point, 
our, our minds may be conditioned to think we're at the end of time. But I, I give this a go. Think about it and see, uh, see what you end up determining about this. But you'll notice at the outset of this passage, the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. We've already been told that in chapter 20, verse 11, that when the, when the, the, at the earlier judgment scene, and the sea is no more. What is significant in the book of Revelation about the sea? Yes, the beast comes out of the sea. Evil comes out of the sea. The stirring of the sea or the nations. Uh, the sea is, is the, the place, the origin of evil. It's the dragon's domain. We're still in the vision we're still, we're still in that, that, that world of vision that goes back to chapter 13 where all of this evil is coming up out of the sea. And now we're being told that world is gone. The, the world of Rome is gone. They, that, it is wiped off. It is gone. It's gone because they've been judged. And God has, has brought judgment against them. And that enemy is no longer... Uh, in this in this vision, as it looks to the victory of, of God's people, that world is over, and there, the holy city, New Jerusalem, now comes down out of heaven from God, as this new heaven and new earth are being described. And notice that the holy city, New Jerusalem, Ezekiel's talking about Jerusalem of a sort. This is New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Notice it's coming down out of heaven from God. And the city is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city is the bride. If you go down to verse 9, just to skip ahead, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. See, we're still right in the middle of that world, aren't we? We're still dealing with these angels who've been pouring out bowls of wrath on Rome. He said, Come and I will show you the bride of the, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down of heaven from God. The angel told John, I want to show you the bride. But then what did he show him? He showed him Jerusalem. He showed him the city. What would you conclude from that? If the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride, and then he shows him the city, okay, either the angel is lying, <laughs> or mistaken, or there is, there, which isn't the case, by the way, let me, if that's being recorded, let me just go on record, or the city and the bride are two ways of speaking about the same thing. I think we'd have, we don't have any problem with the bride, <laughs> We know about the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We know about the bride of Christ. This is an image in the New Testament we're very familiar with. And it's the church. The church is seen here. Uh, we're told that the city is coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. And, and I go to verse 9 just because we need to make this connection. That what we're reading about here in the new heaven and new earth is the city comes into this whole new world. This city is a description of the people of God. And the, the relationship that the people of God now have with him, the reality of their triumph now that they live in this new world where their enemy is gone. Uh, 
And, and we're told here that that um, because of this, you know, and notice the language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We read that in Isaiah. What, I, what I'd like to point out is what we're going to read here in the next chapter. You can read in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's not talking about the end of time. It's talking about a whole new world for God's people because of God's judgment of those that have persecuted them. And I'd like for you to consider the case, and I see our have to consider it more next week as we move into this last vision, that, that what we're reading about here, uh, as we begin to look at this city, this new Jerusalem, and let me just come out and say it right now, and please read ahead and read the notes, because we're, we're kind of coming to the, the climax of things here, that the new Jerusalem, the holy city, is the bride is the church. So when we read about the New Jerusalem, beginning at verse 9, we're not reading about a geographical location. We're reading of a description in beautiful imagery of God's people and God being in the midst of them. And if you'll read through that entire section and begin to let your mind... Uh, look over the imagery of the twelve gates and the twelve foundation stones and how it's twelve hundred stadia and it's a perfect cube. How do you have a city? If you Well, that's next week. We'll get to that. But if you look at that imagery, uh, I just I needed to jump ahead so I can kind of set this, the stage and please uh, read through the, uh, the notes from where we left off. A- at this point, God saying, I'm going, to be their God. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to wipe away every tear. There's no more mourning or crying or pain. Now, let me ask, one day, one day, that will literally be true. One day, Jesus is going to come back. All of this language that's being used within time, all of this language will one day actually happen at the return of Jesus. We're not saying when we, when, when we read Revelation 21 that this is crushing our view of eternity. No, no, no. These images are out of eternity. These are, these are the images of what eternity will be like. But they're taken and applied to a moment in time to describe the triumph of the church and the presence of God within His church even now. Because God dwells in the church today. God dwells in, in the city, in the temple today, in His Holy Spirit. One day that will be realized absolutely when the Lord returns. But even now, there we have a foretaste of that. And we'll... Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I can't ask you to have any questions. But uh, <laughs> write them down or come see me afterwards. And thank you. Uh, sorry I didn't kind of stop along the way and make sure we were, everybody was on the same page here. But we'll, uh, we'll pick up there next week. Thanks so much. Let's, let's pray. Father, one of the things we've been reminded of tonight, and I just so appreciate Eldon's comment because I don't think we would even thought of it if he hadn't made that comment earlier, is how you, knowing the end from the beginning, are able to use language from the end throughout history so that as we get further down the line and understand what you will do at the end, we can look back on these passages and they, they, they're, they're so much clearer for us and they make much, so much more sense and they're... They fill us with hope. And we, Father, 
We look forward not just to your victories for your people on this earth and your vindication of your people here, but we especially long for the day when Christ will return and all of these things that we're reading about in kind of in a shadowy way will truly happen. Dear God, we look forward that day when death itself will be destroyed and we will live with you. We long for that day and the coming of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.